You're listening to The 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's get right into it with our guests. Wendy Benjaminson is Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Government for Bloomberg News. Wendy, welcome. Thanks for having me. Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and the author of two biographies, including her latest, Madam Speaker. Susan, good to have you with us again. Hey, Sarah, great to be with you. And Tolu Olurunipa is the White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, also co-author of the book. His name is George Floyd. Tolu, always a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I want to start with the news that yesterday, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate the discovery of classified documents at President Biden's home and former office. Earlier today, I I signed an order appointing Robert Herr a special counsel for the matter I've just described. The document authorizes him to investigate whether any person or entity violated the law in connection with this matter. The special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day supervision of any official of the department, but he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the department. Susan, what do we know about this? Well, we know that uh, uh, they came. The Biden lawyers, lawyers for Joe Biden, have come across documents both in an office and in his garage and uh, in an adjoining room uh, that they've reported this to the National Archives. That now the Justice Department is involved. The the president uh, says he doesn't know what the documents are. It's unclear how they got there. Uh, And so these are questions that prompted the attorney general to name a special counsel. That might not have been legally required, but I think it was probably politically required because it really muddies the waters. Uh, Although the, the facts are very different from the case involving uh, former President Trump's treatment of, of uh, classified documents. Uh, politically, this muddies the waters on those two investigations. So we're this is an issue that, that the Friday News Roundup, I suspect, will be talking about for months and months and months to come. And Tolu, as Susan just alluded to, U.S. Attorney and Trump appointee John Lausch had been investigating the documents. That role now goes to Robert Hur, the special counsel appointed by Merrick Garland yesterday. Tell us more about Hur's role. Well, he is a special counsel, and he's going to be investigating uh, how all of this came to be. Um, the president and the president's aides have said that this is a review, but this is actually an investigation. Robert Hur is an investigator. He is going to be trying to figure out whether or not in, there's any criminal intent or whether or not there's any uh, need for any criminal uh, charges to be made uh, as a result of what happened. It is not legal to um, wantonly take classified documents and take them out of the possession of the government and use them for your own personal purposes. But there are questions of intent, questions of whether or not this was just just a mistake. And that's what Robert Hur will be trying to get to the bottom of and also figuring out, you know, what was in these documents? Are all of these documents actually classified documents? Or are there any other documents that may be um, in the possession of uh, Biden when they're supposed to be in the possession of the government? And uh, so he has a pretty broad mandate to figure out what happened. uh, And we will eventually find out whether or not what he finds is going to be made public or whether or not there will be any you know, charges made or anyone will be held accountable for, for how all of this happened or whether or not we'll get a, f- a fuller accounting of what exactly happened. Uh, we've had special counsels in the past uh, that have focused on presidents, and it 
really depends on the special counsel, the time, the attorney general, and figuring out exactly what the public gets to see of the investigation. Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see to figure out exactly what will become of this investigation and whether or not Robert Hur will be able to tell the public what he found over the course of his investigation. And Susan, what's at stake for President Biden here? I mean, having a special counsel rummaging around the West Wing, what could that mean? It's never a good thing. Right. You know, since uh, since Watergate, every president except Barack Obama has had a special counsel investigating one aspect or another of uh, his life or his administration. And, the you know, it's sometimes they come back with damaging reports and sometimes they come back with findings that aren't so damaging, but they are inevitably a big distraction for the White House. And this comes at a moment that the administration is dealing with the reality that with Republicans having taken control of the House, they're not going to get probably not going to get big legislative victories through in the next two years. They wanted to portray themselves as in real contrast to Republicans, as as uh, as an administration and a president focused on Americans' lives, delivering for them the kind of split screen that we saw when the president went to Kentucky to to tout uh, funding for that bridge that has so long uh, needed uh, repairs. This this makes that harder uh, because the, pre- they, the White House will have to deal with these questions and. And this this week, they failed to answer some very fundamental questions about what was going on. That is probably not a sustainable approach. I think they're going to need to become more forthright about releasing information, especially in a timely way. So just to recap the way this is supposed to work, right, after a president or vice president leaves office, records are supposed to go to the National Archives. We learned last year former President Trump had been storing classified documents from his time in the White House at his Mar-a-Lago residence. Trump, of course, is under investigation by special counsel Jack Smith. Wendy, where do do things stand with that investigation into former President Trump? Well, as you said, Jack Smith, who is a you know another renowned special prosecutor, and both I might add were Trump appointees. Um, he is trying to figure out, uh, as Tolu made the good point earlier, you know what what is the intent, what kind of documents there are, how bad is this? The one very striking difference that we know now, because as others said, there is still a lot of unknowns, is that Trump resisted turning them over for almost a year, prompting the FBI to execute a search warrant on his Mar-a-Lago home. Joe Biden, for whatever other mistakes he made in keeping these documents and being glib about it yesterday, creating more political headaches and all of this that we've discussed, the difference is that when Joe Biden's team discovered the documents, oops, my bad, and they immediately called the archives and handed them over to the archives. So Trump faces an extra layer of legal peril in that he could be charged with obstruction of justice, which is something Biden won't have to deal with. You know, Susan, as as Wendy just mentioned, Democrats have been defending Biden by insisting that these two situations are very different. There are some differences. Put those into perspective for us, if if you could, a little bit more. As best we know, what are the similarities between these two situations? What are the differences? Well, the similarities are that uh, both uh, uh, President Biden and former President Trump have been found to have documents, uh, sensitive documents they were not supposed to have. Uh, And they kept them in places that are not considered secure for such sensitive documents. You know, the president was asked about this yesterday, and he said, well, we didn't put them on the street. They were in a locked garage with my Corvette. That does not meet the federal standard 
for the storage <laughs> of classified documents. Safe to say. So that in in that sense, they're the same. In many other ways, they are they are different. They're different both in the number of documents. So far as we know now, the number of documents that uh, Biden had far fewer than the number that Trump had. Uh, we know that they acted more expeditiously, as Wendy just said, to alert authorities and turn the documents over once they were found. But there's a lot we don't, in some ways, it's hard to be extremely confident about what happened with the Biden documents because we don't know. We don't, there's so much we don't know about it. And and the fact is there are some things, while we know more about Trump's uh, treatment of, of sensitive information, there are things we also don't know about that. So I think it's a case where we need to be um, uh, modest about how how certain we can be about how this will turn out. And that is one of the risks, frankly, of having a special counsel in there. Often special counsels have pulled at one thread and unraveled the garment in an entirely different place that you didn't expect. Uh, that's, that's one reason that... Uh, Presidents are not enthusiastic about having special counsels named. And Susan, why didn't we hear about this earlier? I mean, the first batch of classified documents apparently was found in early November, but we're waiting until now to learn this. Yes, well, I think the timing of the midterm election might possibly have had something to do with the White House not wanting to get that information out. Uh, That would have been certainly very explosive news in the days leading up to the to the midterm election. Um, and so they, they, I think they faced some criticism about not being more transparent at that point. Also, when the word of the first documents uh, leaked because of news reports, they confirmed that but didn't mention that they had subsequently found additional documents. So that doesn't go to the process of building trust with the press and the public that you're going to be uh, uh, fully transparent with them on what's going on. Tolu, we've just got about a minute before a break, but quickly, you know, we'll talk about the new Republican majority in the House soon. But to what extent is the House now interested in adding the discovery of this, these documents to its other investigations into Biden? This is a gift for the House Republicans who want to spend much of the next two years investigating Joe Biden and his administration. This is a legitimate area where they can investigate and say that there was potential wrongdoing by the president and ask these you know, fundamental questions. <clears throat> what did the president know and when did he know it? And that is something that they're going to be looking to do not only over the next several months, but as this investigation drags out potentially over the next two years. Much more in just a moment when we return. Stay with us. We'll be back soon. House Republicans have spent their first week in office taking aim at the government. That includes targeting IRS funding, gutting the Office of Congressional Ethics, and establishing a new special panel on the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. Wendy, I'll start with you, and let's start with the IRS. The first bill passed by the GOP-controlled House would repeal a recent boost in IRS funding. So why go for the IRS first, right out of the gate? Well, if you listen to the White House, it is to help tax cheats who are rich avoid paying their taxes. I think this is more part of um, the Republicans, you know, um, enthusiasm for cutting government spending wherever they can find it and, um, and, uh, you know, and not having this huge what they consider bloated government taking care of things. The interesting thing about this is, one, it's a messaging bill. It will never pass the Senate. It will never be signed by Joe Biden. And number two, 
it, it is a real robbing Peter to pay Paul bill because by taking away money from the IRS to audit people, fewer people will be audited. Those people won't have to pay their full tax bills. And the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that it will add $114 billion, that's with a B, to the federal deficit by taking away the $80 billion that was in the Inflation Reduction Act. But as you say, very unlikely to pass and yeah. primarily intended to send a message. Susan, let's move to the Office of Congressional Ethics. First off, what does this department do? Uh, and, or I should say, what did it do? Well, it's, uh, it's, it was established uh, under the Pelosi regime to investigate ethics complaints. It's an independent body. Um, the, and what, what Republicans have done uh, in their rules uh, governing it is to make changes that Democrats say look innocent, but in fact will make it harder for them, them to effectively do their job. It imposes ter- – they have imposed term limits on members that will force, I believe, all but one of the Democrats – uh, on the panel to go, to uh, to go off it, uh, it puts requirements on you have to they have to hire their staff in thirty days. It has various steps that just makes the operational uh, the operation of this panel more difficult. Uh, so in in a way that's uh, you know that's uh, for those it's, it, Congress has a hard enough time enforcing its own ethics rules against its members. Uh, you and you see a situation now like with uh, Congressman Santos from. From Long Island, where a lot of members, including some Republicans, would like the ethics uh, the ethics process to work its its well with him, uh, that these changes that have been made are going to make this body, I think, less less effective and less able to do the job it was set up to do. And Susan, what are Republicans saying about why they want to scale it back? How are they defending this? Well, they 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 describe it as making things more efficient. Uh, they have, of course, they're in the in control now. They can change the rules. Um, as they wish, they have opened, uh, in some ways, opened up the process by allowing the public to file um, ethics complaints with the ethics committee. Uh, but Democrats see uh, other other motives here, so I guess it depends on who you who you believe. Tolu, let's check in on this special probe into the quote weaponization of the federal government. What is it? What it is it supposed to do? Uh, it's essentially giving Republicans in the House the ability to go after. Um, the federal government for what they allege uh, has been uh, a long pattern of weaponization of federal resources to target conservatives, to target Americans, to silence free speech, and even to go after the former president with the FBI, uh, raiding former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate um, last year. And so Republicans have been up in arms over what they believe is uh, the weaponization of the federal government, and now they will have subpoena power and all of the various authorities to investigate what they believe uh, has been uh, uh, egregious actions by the federal government to target citizens, to target conservatives. Now, we have to say that the the evidence that this is happening is very slim, and Republicans are hoping that with all of these new authorities, they'll be able to find more evidence. Um, but this is a major move and a focus uh, where re- Republicans are going to be spending a lot of their time with Jim Jordan leading this probe uh, to try to call out the federal government for what they believe are abuses that have taken place in recent years. And so we'll have to wait and see whether or not they can find the evidence that they're looking for to substantiate some of these major claims that they're making that haven't had evidence thus far. But they believe that with these new authorities and with this new focus, they will be able to call out what they believe uh, is the weaponization of the federal government, specifically targeting conservatives, 
targeting the former president, Donald Trump, and targeting Americans at large. Meanwhile, Long Island Congressman George Santos is, of course, facing calls to resign from within his own Republican Party after fabricating most of his resume. Some New York Republicans in Congress are telling Santos to resign. So has the Nassau County Republican Party in Long Island. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, however, is standing by his man. There is a concern. He has to go through the ethics. We'll let him move through that. Now, Tolu, Santos himself has been adamant that he will serve out his term. Is there any mechanism that could actually force him to resign? There are mechanisms, but they're very unlikely to be used. Now, if his colleagues in the House all agreed or a majority of them agreed that he should not uh, remain as a, member of a con- as a member of Congress, they could kick him out using their own powers that they have internally in the House. But short of that, he would have to resign or be kicked out by the voters in two years. And it seems like he's not willing to resign. And the fact that the Republicans have such a slim majority in the House means that every Republican vote matters. And Santos represents a district that was won by Joe Biden and that Democrats are eyeing very closely. So if he resigns, it's there's a good chance that a Democrat could take over that district and it could be much more difficult for Republicans to m- continue to maintain their majority. And so that's one reason you don't see a lot of pressure from Republican leaders in the House to kick him out of their caucus. And you see him being able to withstand this politically because he realizes that he has a lot of leverage as one of the few Republicans that make up the majority, the the less than five-seat majority that Republicans have. And so if he goes, uh, he realizes that Republicans are going to be in a worse position. And so even as his local Republicans are calling on him to resign, we haven't seen that kick up to Republican leadership in the House. They've said, you know, let this play out, innocent until proven guilty, and they're hoping that this will all blow over and he'll be able to remain in the caucus at least for the next two years. So that's political pressure, public pressure we're talking about. But it could it could become more. Federal prosecutors in New York are investigating Santos's finances. Susan, first off, what is the issue there? What are they looking into exactly? Well, they're looking into whether he uh, whether he accurately reported filled out his financial disclosure forms and whether he violated campaign finance laws in uh, funneling money to his campaign uh, that that amount to illegal contributions. Uh, there's, you know, almost everything George Santos told us about himself has turned out to be inaccurate. So there's a lot of skepticism that on his on his financial uh, his financial reports that he was telling the truth there. I, you know, I got to say this is a represents a real failure of our political system. Uh, it's a and a failure for the news media. You know that that these these lies that were not that hard to uncover, uh, that they weren't uncovered by anything except for a small North Shore, uh, Long Island uh, news organization that got no attention. That the, that the local news media did not uncover these lies. That the Democratic Party did not do opposition research that would have uncovered them, and that the Republican Party uh, didn't do it seems to me due diligence to figure out um, who this person was that they were working to elect to the Congress. So it's a, it's really, it, it is really a failure all the way around. And now we have a situation where it's, it, if, um, you know, sometimes when people face legal consequences, they can be convinced to resign. But short of that, uh, he is likely to be a member of Congress for the next two years. What do you make of that, Susan? I mean, I think that is one of the most jaw-dropping aspects of this whole story. I mean, and this is not like a congressman who's from 
a news desert where there's no media. I mean, he's from New York. How did this happen? So I I don't know the answer to that. Um, It it may reflect the fact that um, uh, local news outlets have faced the same pressures that national news outlets have that have resulted in a reduction of of staff, a, a lack of resources. You know, the news industry is, uh, has en- encountered a lot of uh, turbulence uh, in recent years, and and even just in the in the past few months, we've seen that in layoffs at, at a lot of places. Uh, so that's part of it. But it's not really. It is a fundamental. It is part of our charter uh, as journalists to do just this kind of uh, scrutiny of those who are running for office. So I think it's quite disappointing, and I hope we can. Uh, I hope we can do better. We as a business as an industry, uh, do better in the future. Wendy, how much of a problem is this for Speaker McCarthy as he tries to lead his caucus? How much of a distraction is this? I I think that it will probably, once they really you know start doing a lot, probably settle down after a while and go away. And it is absolutely right that Kevin McCarthy needs every single vote. And George Santos could probably do even worse than lie and still be supported by McCarthy because he is a Republican in a Democratic district. If he were to resign, almost certainly a Democrat would replace him and that would give him even more of a margin. So I think all Kevin McCarthy has to do is really um, you know, keep Santos close, maybe get him to talk less and uh, keep getting himself into trouble. And eventually we will move on to uh, bigger things. Quick word now about California, where at least 19 people have been killed after catastrophic flooding swept the state. Governor Gavin Newsom warned residents more storms are expected in the coming days. We expect these storms to continue at least through the 18th of this month. Uh, We expect a minimum three more of these atmospheric rivers in different shapes and forms, depending on different parts of the state. The magnitude of this is not isolated to smaller communities. It is scaled across the largest state in our union. Despite the ongoing rain, California remains in a severe drought. You know, our thoughts are also with the people of Alabama who've been dealing with their own extreme weather in the form of tornadoes this week. You can hear more updates on all of this on NPR newscasts and later today on All Things Considered. Wednesday was a bad day to fly. A glitch in the Federal Aviation Administration's computer system grounded flights across the U.S. for hours. Wendy, what do we know about how this happened? Well, apparently it was nothing more complicated or heinous than a corrupted file in a computer somewhere that ended up grounding and delaying and keeping circling in the air thousands and thousands of airplanes. So um, it was one of those small things that turns into a massive thing and um, certainly hasn't helped the American public feel any better about air travel or frankly travel in general um, since the pandemic. And um, as we're reporting this morning, also not not a good look for Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, who, of course, um, still probably harbors presidential ambitions. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Uh, Tolu, how, how much does this add to the pressure on Secretary Buttigieg as the uh, Secretary of Transportation? Um, you know, the FAA says they'll try to prevent this from happening again. Uh, but what does this mean for him? Well, he definitely faces a lot of pressure in part because Americans generally are not too happy with the way the airlines and the 
transportation industry has been working when it comes to uh, air travel, especially over the past several weeks when we saw the debacle with Southwest Airlines after Christmas. Over the summer, there were a lot of delays that people got caught up in. And just the, re the, the return to somewhat uh, of a sense of normalcy after uh, two years of COVID restrictions uh, means that Pete Buttigieg and the Transportation Department have a lot on their plate in terms of trying to make sure people can get back to the skies safely and that all of the outdated and outmodeled uh, parts of our transportation industry need to be updated. And he's also overseeing this broader uh, infrastructure package that is being implemented over the next couple of years, including infrastructure to update um, our air travel. And so uh, people, as soon as they have an issue with their air travel or their flights is delayed, they do look at the Department of Transportation and say, what are you doing to take control of this? And right now they have a lot on their plate and this latest flub with the FAA is just another sign that there's an, a lot that needs to be upgraded. There's a lot of technology that needs to be uh, updated. And uh, Pete Buttigieg is one of the people who is going to be in charge of that. And he obviously has major political ambitions and sort of watching how he handles this and how he manages this this department that impacts so many Americans uh, is going to be very interesting to see. And it'll be something that has high, um, uh, high stakes for Americans who are traveling, but also high stakes for Buttigieg individually and politically as well. You know, Susan, this comes on the heels of a Difficult travel season over the holiday break. Uh, there, there have been reports of some problems on, on Amtrak in recent days. And, of course, this major disruption this week uh, with the FAA. Of course, not everything can be blamed on the Secretary of Transportation. But what do you make of this? I mean, how does this – what does this mean politically for, for the Biden administration and, and for Secretary Buttigieg? Well, it's definitely a challenge for Buttigieg. Uh, but, you know, it's also an opportunity. Uh, it's like I'm assuming – you know, he hasn't been uh, – had oversight of the FAA for very long uh, for, for not quite two years. Uh, he presumably wasn't actually doing the programming for the FAA program that, that went uh, awry. So the, uh, so the challenge is that bad travel makes people really angry, but the opportunity is maybe if he can do something to address it, to make things better, uh, that would be, that would sit well with Americans. I'm sure he is more comfortable when the villain is Southwest Airlines and their antiquated computer system and not the federal government's antiquated computer system. But let's see Let's see how he responds to it, how the administration responds to it. Uh, FAA uh, funding is coming up soon. They've asked for a budget increase to cover uh, updating some of these computer systems. Uh, let's, let's see what happens. But it's definitely been a, a tough couple weeks for people who are trying to travel. It's the News Roundup. We'll cover a lot more of the week's top headlines with our guests right after this. We are learning more about a shocking incident in Virginia in which a six-year-old shot and injured his teacher. On Monday, the Newport News police chief said there was no warning or fight before the child opened fire, but that the shooting was intentional. Now, it's unclear who, if anyone, will be charged with a crime in this case. Susan, first of all, what do we know about how the child got this gun and how does a crime like this by such a young child, you know, how do you move forward with something like that? Yeah, well, first a shout out to the teacher, Abigail Zwerner, who was first grade teacher, shot by her six-year-old student, managed to get her students out of the classroom and to safety before she fell and, mm. and was quite seriously wounded, but she's survived and we certainly hope she's doing well and that she's uh, back in the classroom, got back in the classroom soon. We know that the student's mother had legally purchased the gun and then 
brought it to school, it's unlikely that the six-year-old is going to be charged. I mean, for goodness sakes, how do you charge a six-year-old with a with criminal action, uh, but it's possible that the, the the kid's parents could be charged. There is a law in Virginia that uh, a misdemeanor that is intended to protect uh, children, preteens, uh, from access to firearms. So we'll see what happens with that. But this is just a you know a horrifying case uh, that is just I think really difficult to fathom, and of course repercussions for the teachers, for the other kids in the classroom, and for the six-year-old who was, was involved with this. It's just, it's just hard to imagine. There are so many tragic situations where children get a hold of guns, uh, you know, that are not locked up or whatever. And, and those are so tragic. But I think the one that the, the situation here is just so startling because police do say it was intentional. You know, we should also talk about the deliberation over New York's gun laws. The uh, Supreme Court will allow New York to enforce a strict gun law that was enacted in July for now. The law was passed in response to the Supreme Court striking down a previous New York gun law. Which, and the new one requires people seeking gun licenses to show that they have, quote, good moral character. It also bans guns in many public locations. Tolu, can you tell us more about this law? How did it come to be and what it's replacing? Well, the Supreme Court, which has been expanding gun rights uh, over the past several years, uh, did so uh, last year when it comes to one of New York's gun laws that uh, was pretty restrictive in terms of making it harder for people to access firearms. People had to jump through a few hoops and prove that they were uh, worthy uh, in order to be able to get a, a license for a firearm. And the Supreme Court struck that down and the New York legislature, the New York Assembly, came back with a new law that they felt would um, allow them to still restrict access to guns, but also comply with the, the Supreme Court order that had come down. Uh, and so far, it has withstood um, some of the legal scrutiny that the Assembly knew would be coming because uh, there are people who are saying that this is just a workaround, that, that, doesn't, that this new law essentially still restricts the Second Amendment in uh, unconstitutional ways. But at least so far, the Supreme Court has allowed that law to remain on the books. Um, obviously, the legal battle has not ended, and there are uh, gun rights groups that are pledging to continue fighting and taking this uh, this case to the Supreme Court, saying it you know violates the Second Amendment and makes it harder for uh, law-abiding citizens to uh, you know use their Second Amendment rights, and that it is uh, in defiance of the Supreme Court's ruling that just came down um, last year, and so. The battle continues over this, but New York and a number of other states want to restrict access to to guns, especially given the uh, the, the amount of violent crime that we've seen in recent years. And uh, you know they've had their hands tied a little bit by the courts, and specifically by the Supreme Court. And so this is one instance in which the Supreme Court has allowed this law to remain on the books. But I, I don't think this is the end of the story, in part because we do expect these legal challenges to continue, and the Supreme Court which did not you know, give a, a reasoning for its ruling or a reasoning for its decision um, in this most recent case, may uh, have the need to provide more details, hear arguments, go into more, um, more specifics about what exactly the law allows, what exactly the Constitution says about this new law. And so we may be in a position a month from now or a year from now where the Supreme Court is actually putting in its ruling, and it may be different than its initial decision to allow this law to, to remain on the books for now. Now, New York isn't the only state making moves to regulate gun ownership. On Wednesday, Illinois' governor signed the Protect Illinois Communities Act into law. 
Illinois now officially prohibits the sale and distribution of these mass killing machines and rapid fire devices. I'm signing this legislation tonight so that it can take immediate effect and we can end the sale of these weapons of war as soon as possible. That's Illinois Governor J.D. Pritzker. The law bans military-style assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Now, before we move on to the economy, a bit of entertainment news. The Golden Globes returned Tuesday night after a two-year hiatus. An L.A. Times investigation raised concerns about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's financial practices and revealed not one of its 87 members was black. The host of Tuesday's ceremony, comedian Jared Carmichael, did not shy away from that in his monologue. The night featured wins for director Steven Spielberg for his film The Fablemans and actor Jennifer Coolidge in HBO's The White Lotus. Now on to the economy. The overall price of goods has seen its biggest drop in nearly three years. That's according to the latest Consumer Price Index. What is the data telling us about the U.S. state of the economy? Uh, Wendy, first of all, I'll I'll start with you on that one. Sure. Well, it's uh, the White House was celebrating yesterday before the whole documents thing happened. They were having a good day. Um, and, And they were celebrating the fact that inflation has slowed. The fact is that inflation is still up quite a bit year over year. If you exclude food and energy, which is what most of us are noticing, the prices are going up, inflation is still a little more than 5% over what it was at this time last year. And if you include food and energy, it still is 6.7% above what it was in the previous year. So while this past summer it was as much up as 9%, this is very good news. And the Federal Reserve and the White House are both talking about a possible quote-unquote soft landing, which means we may get out of this, the United States may get out of this, without a deep recession or maybe not a recession at all. And the Federal Reserve can now slow its increase of um, interest rates. So, you know, it's, it's very good news. We are definitely not out of the woods yet, and this will continue to be... Um, you know, an issue for the White House and for the um, Congress where the Republicans really want to, uh, you know, toy with the debt ceiling limit and other and spending issues and other economic things, which could, if it goes off track, trigger a global economic problem as well. This week, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen has been speaking with NPR. My colleague Michelle Martin pushed Yellen on whether she thinks the Fed can cool the inflation rate and avoid a recession. And here's what she had to say. I think we have an independent Fed. I trust them to make the best judgments that they can about what's necessary to accomplish their dual mandate, which is to bring inflation down and to try to maintain a strong labor market. I think there is a path there that makes that possible, but I wouldn't try to second-guess the Fed. Now, Susan, you you have to assume this is all good news for the White House. Could we hear more about the economy from the president, or is the White House still cautious about what might come next year? Well, Americans are still really concerned about inflation. They still see its effect um, when they go to the grocery store uh, or, or when they, they look at, at buying things. But this is 
great news for them because you know the, th- the th- some people think achieving a soft landing is like finding a unicorn. It's great to talk about. It's really hard to do, uh, but and yet we're in a situation where, as Wendy said. The inflation is cooling. Uh, It's better, not over, but cooling. While the job market remains uh, strong and the unemployment rate is is low. So that is the stuff of real, uh, that is really encouraging for the administration. There is concern about what's going to happen when the debt ceiling needs to be raised. Uh, You know, we have never... Uh, we have never actually, in a serious way, defaulted on on our debt. That would be economically damaging, uh, and yet there are all kinds of warning signs that uh, it's going to be hard to raise the debt ceiling with this Republican House trying to tie it to deficit reduction measures that Democrats say are simply unrealistic and un- unwise. So that's a little bit of a cloud on the horizon. But man, they could not have been more pleased with what they heard yesterday uh, on this consumer price index. Tolu, you know, as as we're hearing, as we're saying, the economy in some ways is getting better, but people aren't necessarily feeling it, you know, in their pocketbooks or emotionally. How does the White House talk about that? It's a tough message because you don't want to do too much celebrating about some of the positive numbers we've seen, whether it's on the jobs front or on the inflation numbers or on the fact that a number of new projects are coming on. Uh, But at the same time, you do want to be able to celebrate positive things happening. So they are trying to find the right balance. You see the president going to uh, different places where either jobs uh, announcements are being made or parts of his agenda are being implemented, things like uh, you know, the $35 cap on insulin for, for members uh, uh, of the senior community who are on Medicare. Uh, you will see the president going out and talking about his agenda, talking about things that he's accomplished. But even in those speeches, he says things like, we know people are still hurting. We know there could still be bumps along the road. We are continuing to fight and work to try to bring inflation down. We know the prices are too high. And so they are trying to strike that balance where they are celebrating the positive economic indicators, but not doing, doing it in a way that is tone deaf or doing it in a way that makes people feel as if they are not aware of the fact that prices are still high on things like groceries and eggs and rent and housing. And so they want to talk about the fact that they are still working on it, talk, talk about the fact that President Biden's agenda is going to be implemented over the next several years and and in the next months we'll start to see some of the impact of things that he passed over his first two years in office. And so that's how they're talking about it. It remains to be seen whether or not that's going to lead to an increase in his approval ratings or whether or not people are going to start feeling better about the economy based on what he's doing. But that is their strategy and that's how they're trying to address the fact that things are better in a number of ways, but also people are still feeling the the impact of high inflation and economic uncertainty. And it may be a while before people feel like everything is okay. Okay. I want to talk about something people feel strongly about, at least people who like to cook, gas stoves versus electric stoves, but sort of a different spin on that. In an interview with Bloomberg, Consumer Product Safety Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr. said gas stoves could one day be a thing of the past. Products that can't be made safe can be banned, Trumka told Bloomberg. Right-wing commentators and politicians jumped on that comment, saying the government was now, quote, coming for your gas stove. Here's Trumka trying to limit the damage done when he later spoke to CNN. We are not looking to go into anyone's homes and take away items that are already there. We, we don't do that. Uh, if and when we get to regulation on a topic, it's always forward-looking. Um, by trying to educate the public on this, we want to make sure people make informed decisions that are right for them. And of course, we're talking about new safety concerns that have been raised with gas stoves. Wendy, what do we know? Well, we do know that 
those gas stoves which saute, you know, garlic and onion so beautifully, um, they do um, apparently emit fumes that might be bad for your health, for people with asthma, for that may be carcinogenic. And so there is an effort to, you know, begin to limit their use. Um, I've seen some talk that there's induction heat stoves that might be better than electric ones because anyone who's tried to do a lot of cooking on an electric burner, it can be frustrating. I know that professional chefs are very upset about this, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it may, New York is going to be the first state or the latest state, I should say, excuse me, to, um, to ban um, gas stoves, but as they said, it will be in the people who already have gas stoves will be grandfathered in, and new appliances will not will not be gas in those states. But it's you know when you get food versus health, it's it's a definitely a divisive topic. You know, Susan, people might have, you know, strong preferences on this issue based on maybe how they grew up or how they like to cook or maybe even, you know, the setup in your house, too. Why do you think this story ignited so much attention, though? Ignited, so to speak. So to speak. Thank you for catching that. News to me that gas stoves created environmental problems. That was a that was a revelation. Unlike, I know Wendy's a great cook. I am a terrible cook, but I can still say that working on a gas stove is easier and more fun than on an electric electric stove. And the reason I think it took off actually is uh, the reason at least that conservative critics have really focused on this is it raises the specter of the heavy hand of government that can even come in and tell you you can't have a gas stove. Uh, so that's I think that is the theme that they've. Uh, Taken up, but it's been it's been a very educational week for me when it comes to gas stoves. Yeah, I know my mom loved to cook with gas stoves. She said the same thing. It was easier to modulate. I, I don't know. I'm a mediocre cook, I guess. And uh, generally, wherever I live, whatever the house or apartment has is what I cook with. So, um, but you know, it, I think for 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 families with kids with asthma, it's a it's a concern. And um, and I think you're right. This kind of comes on the heels of a couple of years, right, Susan, of of debates over government control of and health related, you know, circling around health related concerns. Yeah, no, no kidding. It also comes up a couple of years where we had COVID lockdowns, and we all became much more familiar with our stoves than we had been before. We're going to have to leave it there. It's been great talking with all of you. We've been talking with Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today and author of two biographies, including Madam Speaker, Wendy Benjaminson, the Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Government for Bloomberg News, and Tolu Olurunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. He's also the co-author of the book. His name is George Floyd. Thanks to all of you so much for joining us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. We'll get into the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White, and it's time for the international edition of the News Roundup. As always, so much to talk about and so little time. Helping us out today as we look at the biggest stories around the world, Jack Detch. He's Pentagon and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Jack, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Sarah. Good to be here. Anne-Marie Hordern is the Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. Welcome back, Anne-Marie. Thanks for having me. And with us from Beijing, David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host the podcast Drum Tower. David, thanks for being here. Hello. 
So we are going to begin in Brazil. On Sunday, January 8th, supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro ransacked Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and Presidential Palace in Brasilia. They called for a military coup and to overturn the election won in October by President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. So, Jack, I'll start with you. What has happened in the past few days since this attempted coup? Well, Brazil has kicked off a major investigation into these attacks. I mean, really the most serious assault on Brazil's institution and democracy since the dictatorship ended in the 1980s. Now, Lula's on the record calling this an inside job. Uh, People are wondering how this fleet of 40 buses or more showed up in Brasilia, the capital, from 10 Brazilian states bringing Bolsonaro's supporters into the capital. Uh, And you you just see uh, Lula's administration, which was hoping to focus on poverty, on ending the economic crisis, on focusing on strengthening Brazil's democracy and institution, now thrown into this crisis. Uh, And it's not just the investigation they're focused on. They're detaining more than 1,000 people uh, from this investigation. Now, uh, of course, 600 of them have been released, uh, some of them on on medical conditions. But, um, you know, you have these people with their cell phones uh, in gymnasiums on Brazilian federal police uh, headquarters in in those areas, uh, basically, uh, you know, releasing phone footage showing the conditions that they're in. So this is a huge political problem uh, for Lula right now as he tries to begin his administration after the tumult of, of Bolsonaro, basically being thrown back into the past here. Now, Jack, obviously many comparisons are being made between January 6th here in the U.S. and January 8th in Brazil this year. How directly do the rioters appear to have been influenced by the events at the U.S. Capitol in 2021? It's certainly, I mean, you you can't avoid... Uh, really the parallels between the two, except the fact that uh, uh, Planalto Palace in in Brasilia, uh, their version of the capital, really appears to be, you know, much more trashed uh, than what we saw. I mean, uh, portraits with um, slashes through them, uh, really just an immense mess to to clean up there in in Brasilia. Uh, But it's it's just surprising to see this after the intense lobbying that the Biden administration really did with Bolsonaro uh, behind the scenes. You had officials from the White House, the Defense Department, the State Department, even the CIA, going down and holding meetings and calls with Brazilian officials in the run-up to this election, which of course was incredibly contentious, trying to make sure that Bolsonaro uh, didn't make any efforts to subvert uh, these heated presidential elections. And and what we're seeing, uh, perhaps, if indeed there is a link uh, to Bolsonaro and his inner circle, uh, is that may not have happened here, that those efforts to to influence uh, changes in that inner circle may not have been successful. Anne-Marie, Jack just mentioned more damage in Brazil, but I want to talk about the other differences between what happened on January 6, 2021 and what just happened in Brazil. What do you see as setting these two events apart? Well, I think what potentially sets them apart is also the fact of, while many will talk about January 6 being in, instigated by the former President Trump, and he ran had a rally just before, down the block before they did the, before the uh, insurrection, uh, it was very different in terms of these protesters that are aligning themselves with Bolsonaro because he's actually in Florida. So he was not even in Brazil when this is happening. And he did come out and say that he's against the protests, but it was a very muted response. And actually earlier that day, he talked about the facts that the election was stolen. So using a similar to playbook that we saw from the former president. But I think what is what is so interesting about this is that 
you had Bolsonaro and his supporters very distant in terms of terms of locations. He, he's in Florida on on vacation while his supporters are in Brasilia, where with January 6th, obviously what we know now is that the former president was watching all this unfold just a few blocks away from the White House. In a press conference on Sunday evening, President Lula told reporters, quote, what happened was a huge warning. We won the election, but fanatic Bolsonaro supporters are very dangerous. This week, protesters turned out to demand jail time for the rioters. In Sao Paulo, that's uh, 61-year-old Betty Amin. She's saying these people have to be punished. The bosses have to be punished. Those who are giving money have to be punished. Brazil is much bigger than what they showed there yesterday. Those people do not represent Brazil. We represent Brazil, she says. Now, David, more than 1,000 protesters are in federal custody and hundreds have already been charged. Some security officials are also being sought. What can you tell us about the investigation so far? Well, there's two parts to this. It's a, it's a huge investigation, and you're quite right that we've seen some very senior officials uh, now accused of essentially colluding in this. So uh, the man who was, in fact, justice minister under Jair Bolsonaro, who then became the head of public security for the city of Brasilia, the capital city, he's on his way back from Florida. Uh, he is accused of basically sabotaging the security operation uh, and, and not letting the police do their job. And you have all of these people going to be, you know, there's other, there's the head of the former military, former head of the military police has also been accused of involvement. And I think that kind of, the seriousness of the investigation is one part of it, but the other really important part of it is actually taking back to that clip you just played from Sao Paulo, where you had someone saying, we are the true Brazil, they are not the true Brazil, and they need to be punished, is if you think American sort of partisan divides are bad, in Brazil, you now have kind of an evenly divided country uh, where the rule of law is now associated as kind of a political weapon. And this is unbelievably dangerous, that there is really no faith uh, in the rule of law amongst the most uh, sort of partisan Bolsonaro supporters. Uh, the fact that he has not publicly conceded the election is taken as proof that it was stolen. There was an opinion poll that The Economist noticed this week. 37% of those who responded said that they would support a military coup to take Lula out of office. And remember that Lula had some serious corruption problems uh, after he left office and did jail time. And so this is an incredibly poisonous environment. And the final poisonous difference with what happened in Washington, D.C., is that you have President Lula now openly accusing uh, the security people, the military aides who run his own presidential palace of being disloyal and suggesting that perhaps they might shoot him and that he wants them replaced with civilians who he can trust. So, you know, imagine the, the, the January 6th riots in America, followed by, you know, President Biden saying he's not sure he can trust the Secret Service to guard him in the White House. That's how bad things are in Brazil. Reacting to the riots on Sunday, former President Bolsonaro said on Twitter that peaceful protests are part of democracy, but destroying public buildings crosses the line. As Anne-Marie mentioned, he's not even in Brazil. He's in Florida. A group of 46 Democratic lawmakers sent a letter to President Biden demanding Bolsonaro's diplomatic visa be canceled. Now, Anne-Marie, how much pressure is Biden under to revoke the visa of Brazil's former president? Well, it first started with two representatives, uh, Joaquin Jeffries and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, immediately coming out and saying the U.S. should not be providing refuge for him. And now it's now these 46 lawmakers saying you, this needs 
to not happen in terms of providing this safe passage for him in the United States. He should not be allowed here. They should not be providing shelter for him. Or they say in their letter, any authoritarian who has inspired such violence against democratic institutions. So the Biden administration is coming under an immense amount of pressure. But Jake Sullivan had said earlier this week that there's been no request to extradite uh, Bolsonaro back to Brazil. Not even sure if President Lula even wants him back in Brazil. Um, but my colleagues at, at Bloomberg actually reported this week that the U.S. is looking at what could be done. Um, could they declare him persona non grata or an order him out of the country uh, that is generally used for a foreign diplomat, not a head of state? Does that even apply to this case? Um, there's a lot of questions that, that need to be answered, but behind the scenes, they are looking at some options of what could be done. But we should note that Bolsonaro did go on uh, CNN Brazil's channel, and he said he's going to cut his trip short. In between all of this, he was also briefly hospitalized near Orlando for these abdominal pains he's, he was suffering from. So he might be going back on his own, which would very much so be welcomed by the Biden administration if he just leaves on his own instead of them having to look at the visas and potentially what could be done. You know, Jack, this was a security failure by all accounts, but this wasn't planned in secret. For months, information about this, quote, beach trip has been traded on WhatsApp, Telegram, and even Facebook. How much do we know about the role misinformation and social media played in this? Uh, I mean, it's it's significant, right? I mean, Bolsonaro had, had trafficked in, in this type of stuff for, for a long time. His supporters even deeper down that rabbit hole. So that's going to be a, a fascinating question for investigators as they begin to look into this, just how much uh, that propaganda being stirred up on WhatsApp and, and other channels had a role to play in, in what we saw transpire on January 8th. One other update from South America. Protests against Peruvian President Dina Boluarte's government have left at least 48 people dead since they started a month ago. In one day this week, 17 people were killed. The unrest started in early December after the arrest of former President Pedro Castillo. That followed his attempt to dissolve Congress and head off his own impeachment. On Tuesday, the Golden Globes featured a surprise special guest. Ladies and gentlemen, dear participants of the 80s Golden Globe Award Ceremony. Not an actor or a director, but Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. He addressed the audience of Hollywood A-listers via video. The war in Ukraine is not over yet, but the tide is turning, and it is already clear who will win. There were still battles and tears ahead. President Zelensky, who's also worked as an actor, comedian, and producer, made a promise in terms of his showbiz audience, in terms his showbiz audience could understand. The First World War claimed millions of lives. The Second World War claimed tens of millions of them. There will be no Third World War. It is not a trilogy. David, we heard President Zelensky say, quote, the tide is turning and it is already clear who will win. How accurate is that summation of where things stand today between Russia and Ukraine? Well, look, it has been a brutal few months for Russia, but there are real fears uh, in Washington and other capitals uh, that Russia isn't beaten, uh, that Vladimir Putin does not intend to lose. And if he has to take some political risks by calling up huge numbers of conscripts uh, and really launching a grim uh, late winter or early spring offensive, that he is capable of doing that. And that uh, there's some real pressure and you can see very intense fighting, uh, not only involving the Russian army, but also involving mercenaries from the astonishingly brutal Wagner group 
which basically recruit prisoners from prison camps and offer them their freedom if they will fight for this mercenary outfit. Um, and, you know, it is an incredibly brutal winter still for civilians uh, in Ukraine who've had their energy uh, systems, their electricity substations, their uh, heating systems pounded for weeks and weeks and weeks now, and it's freezing cold still. But it's also a very scary time for the Ukrainian military. And I think we'll, we'll no doubt get to some of the things that they're asking for from Western governments. But that is why you're seeing not just uh, Zelensky taking advantage of his sort of rock star status uh, in the West to talk to everyone, including the Golden Globes, but also you know talking online to uh, parliaments, coming to Congress to, to address a joint session. But you're seeing a rollout of, of Ukrainian generals and Ukrainian uh, ministers really pushing that they need a lot more heavy weaponry because Russia isn't done. This war is, Zelensky says, they're winning, but there's some very, very dangerous fighting ahead. Right. Well, exactly as you say, President Zelensky also met Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, this week. Poland announced plans to send more tanks to Ukraine, and the UK says it'll do the same. But President Zelensky says that isn't enough. You know, Anne-Marie, Zelensky seemingly never tires of asking for more, and he clearly needs a lot of help in this war effort. But looking ahead, how ready are Ukraine's allies to give more? Well, the U.S. just announced um, really a slew of things, including that the uh, uh, Patriot missile battery when Zelensky, just before Zelensky was here in Washington, D.C. He's also getting one from Germany. And but the asks will continue as long as the fighting continues in Ukraine. And Zelensky has made that very clear. And one of the ploys he made when he gave this joint uh, speech to the joint session of Congress was, I'm not asking you to send your people. We will do all the fighting. Please just send your hardware. So when he met with President uh, Duda, you know, Poland intends to deliver this company of these uh, Leopard 2 battle tanks. And there's some interesting memes from the Ukrainians on Twitter about this. But any transfer would um, need to fulfill a range of formal requirements and approvals. This is what he said to reporters in Lviv. So um, they're holding these concrete talks. We do have to wait to see that these actually go across the border. Um, but they would support Kiev uh, with heavy military equipment. And as David was saying, that is something that they are going to continuously need, especially in the winter months, and especially as there is really intense fighting right now um, around Bakhmut and the Donetsk region. And it still seems unconfirmed, uh, but it does look like in Solodar, at least Ukrainian troops are starting to withdraw. So you could see potentially that if Russia gets an, a little bit of an inch of a victory, they are going to want to really harp on that. So that is why Zelensky is going to be out front, really not wanting to let anyone forget that they continuously need this support. Russia's top commander in Ukraine, who's been dubbed General Armageddon, has been replaced. President Vladimir Putin removed Sergei Sorovkin just three months after he started. Jack, what do we understand about why Sorovkin was removed from his position? Yeah, Sarah, it was fascinating talking to U.S. officials and experts this week about this decision because the big question on everyone's minds was, why now? I mean, you have Russia in the midst of one of its most successful periods on the battlefield in, in months, uh, as, of course, uh, we talked about. It appears to be closing on the door uh, the door on Ukrainian forces in, in Solidar, uh, potentially giving it a greater entreaty into Bakhmut. Uh, that would give the Wagner Group, uh, which has been... Uh, notoriously resource-hungry, perhaps an angle at Ukraine's major salt and gypsum mines there. Um, so it doesn't seem like Sergei Sorovkin uh, was doing a, a terrible job here. He was responsible
possible for better organization of Russia's military than we've seen in the past. I think the major question we have to ask is about internal Kremlin politics here. We'd seen Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner group, that, that mercenary group that's done a lot of the fighting in the Donbass, that's advancing at a faster clip than any other Russian military unit right now, according to American officials, really seeing his star on the rise, kind of upsetting that relationship between Jeremasov, who's, who's set to replace him, uh, and uh, Shoigu, the defense minister. Uh, so the question is, are they going to try and temper uh, the Wagner group uh, Prigozhin's influence here uh, and potentially uh, get a new face in play, uh, one of the most significant faces in the Russian military of recent years. But of course, the question still remains, why do this now at this point? You know, Jack, you just mentioned that Russia is making advances in the Ukrainian city of Soledar, and if captured, it would be the Kremlin's most significant gain since a series of retreats late last year. We know there are conflicting reports about the situation on the ground, but what can you tell us about the status of that fight? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the, the Russians have been, for the past few days, really closing the door on the remaining Ukrainian forces there. Uh, last evening, Ukrainian troops were reportedly waiting on orders to retreat. Uh, they may be getting those orders to retreat right now, which would help them defend the city of Bakhmut, uh, which is just to the south. Uh, so this would be a, certainly a victory for the Russians. Uh, but, but most importantly, this is the Russians kind of creating a new theater of combat uh, where the Ukrainians were hoping to advance uh, and retake areas further towards Crimea, uh, hoping to re-liberate areas uh, that the Russians uh, of course, had retaken since uh, February 22nd. Now it seems like the Russians have kind of sucked them into these bloody vortexes, uh, places like Solidar and Bakhmut that the Ukrainians weren't, didn't have a, at the top of their list. Uh, and now they're sort of bleeding the Ukrainians dry with some of their manpower. So uh, this is kind of a significant moment, potentially, if the Russians can really uh, shift the manpower conversation just as they're looking at a mobilization. Uh, but certainly we'll, we'll have to see how much Ukraine has been bled from these fights. Now on to China and the efforts underway there to contain an unprecedented wave of COVID-19 infections. This week, CNN and others published satellite images taken over several Chinese cities that captured crowding at crematoriums and funeral homes. Now, David Rennie, you don't need a drone to see what's happening in China. Where have you been? In recent days. So I just went on a, a trip down to the countryside uh, to see what is happening as this virus, which has really raced through big cities like Beijing, where I am. And we think, you know, maybe 70 or 80 percent of the population of this city of 20 million people have had COVID in the space of about a month, uh, because having tried to contain COVID uh, for the best part of three years, when they started to lose control of it late last year, uh, because Omicron is just so contagious, it broke all of their kind of containment and quarantine systems, the, the, the entire machinery that we saw to contain this virus just fell away at unbelievable speed. So I went to the countryside this week because having seen it ravaging the cities, the big fear was that it was going to get into the villages where the level of healthcare is extremely rudimentary. One of the big surprises this week was to see that actually it's already got to the villages and it wasn't that long after the cities, which I think points to how unbelievably contagious this Omicron variant is. In terms of those satellite images that you talked about, you know, news organizations using to try and clarify the death toll, why do they need to do that? That's because the Chinese government, which spent the best part of three years boasting that communism is being proved superior because of the incredibly low death toll in China, 
and they would talk every single night on state TV about the more than one million people who died in the United States as proof of democracy's failures and America's decadence. Now China is seeing vast numbers of deaths, but they're not admitting to it. You know, the figures this year in 2023, I think they've admitted to about two dozen deaths in the whole of China. Now, we think it's probably close to hundreds of thousands of people dying tragically. Where I was, uh, I spoke to a funeral worker who said that he was three times busier than usual and the crematorium near him was running at three or four times the usual pace. And it's clear that there have been a huge number of deaths, but China is not going to admit it. David, listeners to your podcast, Drum Tower, were also given this insight from reporter Gabriel Crossley. This is from outside an emergency room inside one of the hospitals we visited. They packed it full of beds and wheelchairs to squeeze more people in. It's full of elderly patients that are all breathing from oxygen tanks. Nurses outside said that they'd been working around the clock for days and that more severe patients were arriving every day. Now, David, no one disputes that at some point there will be another pandemic. And at that point, the world would hope to benefit from Chinese scientific expertise in dealing with this. But you've suggested the most recent lesson from China shows how ideology often trumps science. I wonder if you can say more about that. Absolutely. So there's two things that should really worry the world right now. One of them is that, you know, it's not just that they're embarrassed about the death numbers. It's actually dangerous for the world to be hiding the death numbers, because if there's a new variant developing or Omicron is mutating and it's becoming much more dangerous and killing more people, the whole world needs to know that. The World Health Organization, the UN Health Agency, has been much, much, much more open in its disappointment and distrust of China than we've ever seen, telling them they have to release more information. And, you know, this is also a big political row that China has said that this is a fight between democracy, which is a failure, and communism, which is a success. And so it's it's an absolutely extraordinary political moment. And China made a gigantic mistake by letting this rip without making proper preparation. So you heard Gabriel's tape there of you know, these very, very overwhelmed hospitals where I was in the villages, they were running out of things like uh, paracetamol, acetaminophen, basic fever medicines. Uh, they had hardly any medicine, certainly not the antivirals like Paxlovid that you see in big cities or in places like the States, because they didn't prepare at all for this exit wave. Another important political development that will likely affect U.S.-China relations played out here in Congress this week. Here's Speaker McCarthy on Fox News explaining why. You know what we just passed right now? A select committee on China. And we got 146 Democrats to vote with us. Pelosi would never allow this. I had an agreement with her, and she backed away the night before. So you want to bring jobs back from China to America. You want to stop them from buying our farmland. You want to stop them from stealing our intellectual property. This is where it all starts. And this is only our first couple days in power. Anne-Marie, what more do we know about this committee and how it might affect existing tensions between Washington and Beijing? Well, we do know that the committee was definitely supported overwhelmingly with a bipartisanship. Uh, 365, uh, 365 to 65 was the vote. And we do know that the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, also signed up to vote for this. So it's 16 members. It's going to be chaired by uh, Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. He's an ally, ally of Speaker McCarthy. And he was the one who introduced legislation last year to ban TikTok. That's the social media network that tons of American teenagers and young adults are getting their news on, and it's owned by China's ByteDance. So what you can expect 
is more research into things like TikTok, more legislation about banning certain, um, let's say, Chinese company or social media influence in the United States. Um, it's just a committee, but, um, so it doesn't actually have the legislation jurisdiction, but it's going to really start to scrutinize investments in China, growing concerns about Taiwan, and all of these issues that you hear lawmakers in the White House talk about a lot when they're concerned about what's going on with China, either the business sector or security-wise, when it's going on with Taiwan. The new Republican majority seems convinced that they can unearth more detail about Wuhan. This is a theme we see in conservative media a lot as well about, you know, how the COVID outbreak began. Jack, what's behind that push? Well, I mean, this is something that's that's really sparked up, of course, uh, for a long time in the GOP caucus, something that, uh, you know, President Trump was very interested in himself. So yeah, this is something the, the Republicans are certainly going to be keen to investigate on. But I, I think, of course, the key watchword for this committee is going to be decoupling, looking at ways to really push the administration further on that decoupling strategy from the CHIPS Act that we saw at the end of the year to really onshore more semiconductor production. Uh, and just kind of this game of chicken that Mike Gallagher, who was appointed chairman of the committee, uh, a major China hawk, is going to be playing with the Biden administration, is just seeing uh, whether this committee is going to be looking to beef up military posture faster and dependencies on China, uh, curtail IP theft. They're going to be pushing the administration hard on all of these things. Uh, so look to see that as a major narrative, especially before uh, Tony Blinken's uh, potential trip to China, uh, which should be coming up in the next couple of months. On Wednesday, the U.S. and Japan agreed to strengthen military ties. Top officials from both countries have been meeting in Washington this week to discuss tensions with China, Russia, and North Korea. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told reporters why it's time to deepen the alliance between the U.S. and Japan. I want to reaffirm the United States' ironclad commitment to defend Japan with the full range of capabilities, including nuclear, and underscore that Article 5 of the Mutual Security Treaty applies to the Senkaku Islands. So, David, let's start with why. What is driving these closer military ties between the U.S. and Japan? China. Uh, that's basically what's going on. Uh, I mean, this has been a long time coming. And that sort of technical sounding thing at the end about the Senkakus, we saw that under President Obama. This is these islands that are disputed between Japan and China. And uh, President Obama broke new ground by saying explicitly that America believed that the Senkaku Islands were part of America's commitment to defend uh, Japan if attacked. And that was a big deal for Japan. And we've seen, you know, under the previous uh, Prime Minister Shenzo Abe, uh, more willingness to sort of leave the pacifist constitution after the Second World War that Japan was given by the Americans and try and become more of an offensive military power. But the big shift has been much more recent. And we saw if you want a kind of absolute example in black and white, the, Japan, uh, the Japanese national security strategy, which was released at the very end of last year, the language on China talks about it as an unprecedented strategic challenge. And beyond that, it also talked about the challenge that China poses to the international rules-based order. There was even some language about the challenge that Russia poses to the international rules-based order. And that's not just pretty words. What that really shows is that the Japanese government has basically taken on board the Biden administration's kind of framing of this global confrontation between an international rules-based order supported by democracies and disruptive powers like Russia and China that are trying to have a sort of might-is-right autocratic worldview. 
And for Japan to be so explicitly in lockstep with America on that really is new territory. And so beyond the kind of genuinely interesting agreements to buy hundreds of American cruise missiles and to allow the US Marines more flexibility in how they operate uh, in the south of Japan, there really is, I think, uh, an ideological alignment, which was a phrase that the American Defense Secretary used. And I think that has to do I think we should give some credit to the Biden administration, which has been trying to rebuild alliances after the very turbulent Trump years and to try and sort of show that America is not just about America first, that it actually thinks that alliances make the world a safer place. And I think you're seeing that paying off uh, with this really big move uh, in terms of uh, the language and this worldview, this shared worldview we now see explicitly from the Japanese and the Americans. You know, Anne-Marie, Japan holds the presidency of the G7 this year, and its prime minister is on a week-long trip to visit allies, including Italy, France, Canada, and the United States. Prime Minister Kishida is due to meet President Joe Biden at the White House today. He seems far more hawkish than his predecessors. Is that fair? Well, it certainly is. I mean, December, when you have Japan coming out and talking about having a real defense budget, uh, increasing defense by 60 percent. Uh, you know, David was talking about uh, the, what they have called Beijing, an unprecedented strategic challenge. This mimics what the Biden administration also, and it is incredibly hawkish. And also we should note that the Japanese prime minister actually has um, quite low poll numbers. So this whole G7 tour is he's really looking for this public support for this new security strategy. And the cherry on top of that, obviously, is going to be President Biden and the White House endorsing it, which they pretty much have this week, and they did in December. But, you know, this is really a show of force. They they literally just uh, had the press in the Oval Office. And what we heard from Kushida was that the U.S. and Japan face most complex security challenges. So this is a real pivot for Japan. Um, some neighbors have uh, a little bit concerns about it, considering uh, their memories of a 20th century Japan that was an aggressor. But this is a, a huge pivot. And to David's point, it's not even just China they're talking about. And, and you know, I think for Japan, one of, one of the biggest shocks was not just war games between Russia and China last year, but the fact that a missile from China landed in their economic exclusion zone when Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer. Um, but it's also they're going to be getting on board with the Biden administration when it comes to uh, limiting the sale of advanced semiconductors and chip making equipment to China. So it's really twofold. Next to Israel, where the country's new national security minister is testing the boundaries of his power, Itamar Ben-Gavir has ordered Israeli police to remove any Palestinian flags flown in public, saying the flags display, quote, an identification with terrorism. And Marie, I'll go back to you briefly. Many experts say this ban is unlikely to hold up in court as it's in opposition with the 1993 Oslo Accords. So what's behind this move? Well, this individual is very much so from the, the, the far right, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Um, and, you know, he, he tweeted this, that he wants, he's going to enforce this prohibition. Um, and again, he says, we will fight against terrorism. And also, it, it comes a day after he stirred immense amount of tension because he visited a holy site in Jerusalem. Um, so... This is just one of a few issues that have really been brewing. We also have Netanyahu's government late last week revoking VIP privileges for several senior Palestinian officials. That complicates their ability to travel internationally. Um, and they say this is a, an absolute retaliation. But, 
yes, although potentially this draws some support, or, or Ben Gavir, him and his his thinking draws some support from far right ultra orthodox communities, it is likely not going to withstand the courts and also has provoked local and really international criticism. In Ethiopia, the more than two-year deadly conflict between the country's army and forces from the northern Tigray region seems to be coming to an end. Tigrayan rebels have begun handing over heavy weapons to the Ethiopian army. This comes after a ceasefire agreement that was signed in November by Tigrayan authorities and the Ethiopian government. Amnesty International has called this one of the deadliest conflicts in the world. Jack, where do things stand at this point? Well, it it ain't over till it's over, right? I mean, we've seen the Tigrayan forces, fortunately, in northern Ethiopia, beginning to hand over their heavy weapons in line with a peace deal that was signed back in November. The African Union and and other international organizations calling this a step in the right direction. And the deadliness of this conflict, of course, without parallel, as you mentioned, just thousands dying from starvation, uh, lacking medical care, uh, and, of course, in the fighting itself. Um, but, you know, I, we haven't seen yet the, the full withdrawals that, that would need, be needed to actually affirm this peace deal, uh, even though uh, we see sort of the, the Tigrayan forces uh, handing over their weapons, the Eritrean forces uh, beginning to pull out. They're not out entirely, uh, and some are fearing that it's not clear that they're going to leave. So we still need to see the restoration of, of some of the basic services that the Ethiopians promised in Tigray, uh, more humanitarian aid coming, uh, and the withdrawal of all those troops before we know this is set in stone. As we come to the last several minutes of our program, let's wrap up on something positive. This week, scientists said the ozone layer is on track to be healed within the next few decades. A new report sponsored by the United Nations shows that the global effort to reduce the use of harmful chemicals that affect the ozone layer has been a success. Now, David, that global effort is highlighted in the Montreal Protocol signed in 1987. That was two years after the hole in the ozone layer was discovered. In that protocol, 46 countries promised to stop using those harmful chemicals. So uh, is this cause for hope? What reasons might we have to be cheerful? Cause for hope. And and not just because the ozone layer is fantastically important, uh, you know, in terms of shielding uh, everyone on Earth from the most dangerous effects of the sun's ultraviolet radiation. So healing the ozone layer, though it's going to take a long, long time, we're talking about by the middle of the century, by 2040, 2050, it'll get back to where it was in 1980. So that itself is cause for celebration. But I think it's also a cause for celebration if you're tempted to kind of despair about whether we're ever going to get an agreement on tackling climate change. This is an example uh, of scientists warning that something very, very serious was happening and that it was man-made, these ozone-eating chemicals were the cause, and governments getting it and coming together and agreeing to to wipe out these chemicals. Now, there have been some bumps on the road. In fact, in China, where I am uh, in 2021, uh, we finally had some sort of good news that illegal use of these same ozone-destroying chemicals had finally been cracked down on the Chinese after several years of illegal use of this, which the Chinese denied, but it was happening. But nonetheless... If this template of governments coming together and agreeing to listen to the scientists could ever be used for climate change, I think it is an example that when things are serious enough and there is a fix, that all of those kind of conferences and meetings of scientists and ministers that sometimes look as though they can't get anything done, actually, this is an example that it did get it done. And it was a fantastic success. 
Yeah, as I as I read that, I think, you know, two years to take action and significant action, it, it's harder to imagine that happening today. I mean, how optimistic are you? Is this a, is this a different world? It's a different problem uh, because the thing that made it easier back then was that if you banned the chlorofluorocarbons, there were some very similar chemicals that did kind of the same things. And so you weren't asking people in every country to give up using a fridge. Uh, you were saying, you know what? We need to take the really dangerous chemicals out of fridges and make fridges with better chemicals. Climate change is an order of magnitude harder to fix because you are asking people to change, you know, a lot about, you know, the cars they drive, uh, whether they take aeroplanes as much. Uh, the whole structure of the economy is going to have to change. So this was a very specific uh, problem that was fixable without really asking people to change the way they live their lives. Climate change is harder, but it's bigger. And I think there is now, you know, even here in China, the Chinese government does understand that it needs to take really serious action. It's a mixed picture. They're burning a lot of coal, but they are also installing windmills and solar panels because they know that China itself is going to be underwater in its coastal areas and it's going to get too hot for crops to grow. And so there is a sort of an unbelievably grave problem, but there is a new level of seriousness, at least, I think, from the great powers. All right. I want to wrap this all up by asking each of you what you've been following this week or a story that you think needed more attention. Anne-Marie, I'll start with you because I know you spent some time with President Biden this week on his trip to Mexico. What were your big takeaways? Yeah, so the Mexico trip was interesting because it was the first time uh, they're colloquially known as the Three Amigos, the leaders of Mexico, Canada, and the, U and the U.S. Uh, it was the first time they've met because they did not meet under the Trump administration. So first time they met since the Obama years. Um, there was so much of warmth ties when they were all together, but I definitely was um, struck by President AMLO of Mexico's tone with President Biden in the bilateral meeting, talking about how he still sees ships from Asia show up with goods from Asia in Pacific ports, and why are we not producing everything in America that we can? And one thing that you've seen the Biden administration do is try to go around the world and do uh, have more supply chains and not having the world rely on China. Mexico, what they call nearshoring in the business community, Mexico wants to be a huge part of this story. Um, so I think a lot to come there in terms of how you can see supply chains into the semiconductor manufacturing the U.S. wants domestically, how Mexico might start to ramp some of, them, some of that up in terms of the components the U.S. needs. And how successful do you think that trip was, Anne-Marie? I think it was pretty successful in terms of Three Amigos getting back together. They are going to have a semiconductor forum. Um, there's a lot of discussions on trade, but you know, there's also a lot of difficult conversations right now. I mean, at one point we could potentially see, and I sat down with Canada's trade minister, we could potentially see a parole board or tariffs on Mexico for nationalist energy policies. Um, but the biggest takeaway from the trip, even though it was supposed to talk about drug smuggling, which it did, and migration and trade, was when President Biden talked about how he was surprised about these classified documents found in his office. And obviously that is just growing into more political headache for this White House. David, we heard about your reporting on the ground from China about COVID. Uh, in the couple of minutes we have left, we're wrapping up soon. But what, what else is on your mind this week? Well, I hope to get back on the road very soon because we're about to have uh, Spring Festival, the Lunar New Year, which is like Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. And throughout the pandemic, uh, the normal migration where everyone goes back to their home villages and towns didn't happen. So we think that starting kind of early next week, we're going to see the biggest migration in the world where 
hundreds of millions of Chinese are going to leave the factories where they work on the coast of China and head back to their home villages in this absolutely extraordinary migration. Now, that could spread COVID, but it is also something that has been on hold and it's, you know, many people couldn't see their own children for three years or their elderly parents. And so it's going to be an extraordinary human event. And Jack, we've got about 90 seconds or so for you. What's on your radar for this next week? And or what, what do you think uh, should have gotten more attention this past week? Well, coming up next Friday is uh, the next Ramstein pledging conference uh, for the Ukrainians and, and more weaponry. So uh, I'm going to be watching, of course, uh, countries circling the wagons around the Germans, uh, trying to get them to provide the leopard tanks they've been holding off on for so long, uh, and potentially the use of, of long-range fires, either from the United States or, or another partner, as the Ukrainians have gotten more proficient in that. Uh, the Allies going to want to have some say and some control over their targeting. So that'll be a key story coming into next week. I want to thank all of my guests who helped us out with Global News, Jack Dutch, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Anne-Marie Hordern is Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. And from Beijing, we've been talking with David Rennie, bureau chief in Beijing for The Economist and co-host of the podcast Drum Tower. Thanks so much to all of you for all of your insights and your reporting. Matthew Simonson produced our podcast this week. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.